I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and I'm really excited and indeed honoured even to welcome to the barbecue someone I've long admired both and known to, to some extent as well but long admired his his writings and seeing him uh, as, as a commentator. Uh, you may have seen him yourself. He's an expert on on both American and Australian politics and that's, uh, that's a relative rarity uh, and he has a new book out called very deliberately Trump's Australia. How Trumpism Changed Australia and the Shocking Consequences for Us of a Second Term. Bruce Wolpe, welcome to the barbecue. It's absolutely so great to be here, Mark. We've known each other for a bit. Yeah. And uh, when you were working at the uh, Fairfax newspapers and then afterwards. That's right. And, and you, of course, worked at I Fairfax worked with, newspapers I worked as well. at Fairfax newspapers, head of corporate affairs. So not on the journalism side, the business side. Yeah. Uh, but then when I moved to Julia Gillard's office when she was prime minister, you were covering yes. her and the government. And uh, and you're what, still talking to me, which is, no, uh, which what is was great. Was, no, there, I mean, there are some reporters who are just exceptional. Uh, David Crow. It's just excellent yourself who you could talk because what you're trying to do is try, trying to figure out why what was happening happening and and explain that to readers. There wasn't an angle. There wasn't a, you know, uh, an agenda. And and so it was just great working with you. And, well, that's, uh, and we that's, did some good things. That's very kind of you to say so. I I, um, I look back on that time. In fact, we were just discussing on the very last uh, Democracy Sausage podcast uh, last week with with David Spears and Maria Taflaga. We were just sort of thinking back about Julia Gillard's time because, of course, the ten year anniversary of her departure yes. from that job is like just now. passed. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And um, and so that had us reflecting not just about. Gillard's time, but also about the extent to which Australia has changed, changed as a result of that ten years. Not necessarily just as a result of of, of her stewardship, but, exactly. But it was a pretty pivotal moment, particularly the way things concluded. It was um, um, just one thing about being here on Democracy Sausage. It's such a great title, and there <laughs> uh, there is. Um, I'm part of a conversation almost daily with um, several political scientists in the U.S., including E.J. Dion, ah, yes. Norm Mann, Alan Abramowitz, Larry Sabato. And uh, a couple others. And E.J. Dion wrote a book, and it's relevant to this discussion, called mm. 100% Democracy, which is what are the best democracies in the world because of the way they vote? And Australia's compulsory voting mm. came out as the gold standard for the world in E.J. Dion's uh, and Miles Rappaport co-wrote it. So democracy. So when the election occurs here, 
Leslie and I always send them a photo of us having a democracy sausage after voting, and they love it. And yes. So, so I'm here in spirit and in um, culinary uh, expertise. And enthusiasm. Um, <laughs> yes, look, uh, some democracy sausage listeners have probably heard me say this before, but uh, we've had a number of international people on here over the 250 plus episodes we've done. And um and some of the people from coming from abroad are less familiar with the tradition of the trestle table as yes. a charity outside the, yes. the polling booth where you can pick up a, a sausage and a bit of bread and some sauce. Yes. Um, and they're assuming that the democracy sausage title comes from that old sort of possibly apocryphal Bismarckian <laughs> analysis, which was about, you know, voters don't want to see the, the sausage being made. They don't want to see the internal construction process. They just want to eat the sausage. Right. And in truth, it was a bit of, in my mind, it was that double entendre. It was, it, I actually right. liked it because it sort of spoke to both of those things. So, it does. So internationally, it, it works anyway, even if people don't know that we uh, it have works. compulsory voting and non-compulsory eating of yeah, sausages afterwards. These guys are dying to come here and have a democracy sausage. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. And long may it continue because, as you say, it does celebrate a, a system that um, – you know, it may have its shortcomings. Um, all, all systems do, as uh, I think Winston Churchill pointed out. But um, it uh, it's better than all the rest. That's Absolutely, the truth of it. Yeah. Um, now, look, let's go to your book, and I want to start uh, where you do in your prologue, because I, I mean, for me, th this is part of the honour of talking to you, right? Is that um, you 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 have such a unique and long history, um, which defies your youthful good looks, I might say. Um, <laughs> Because I was absolutely staggered to read this, but you start talking about growing up in, in D.C., in Washington, D.C., yes. which is interesting in itself because yeah. uh, in Canberra, well, for example, we, you know, I mean, increasingly now you meet people who are, who who are born, born here, here but, right. but um, it used to be the case that they were relatively rare. Just about everyone was a kind of an expat from somewhere else. Yep. Um, and the same with, with uh, you know, when you meet people from America. It's a big country, lots of big cities, and you didn't tend to meet that many people. So you grew up there, and, and that's interesting in itself, but... Not only did you grow up there, but because of being an enthusiast as a kid and because of your parents and so forth, you actually remember some very key things. You were actually at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy as a child, presumably. I was. I was uh, it was a really cold day. It had snowed more than a foot, almost two feet the day before. People were wondering whether the inauguration, how it would come off. It was a bitterly cold day, but it was bright sunshine and people might remember that uh, Robert Frost uh, could not read. Um, he had to recite his inaugural poem from memory because the sun was glinting off his glasses in the page in front of him. Right. And uh, but, but Kennedy, of course, uh, youthful uh, vigor, as they say in mass in Boston. <laughs> yeah, vigor. Vigor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't wear a, a top coat and uh, an that's, overcoat. That's and, true. And, yes. So he was in, um, uh, you know, white uh, formal formal dress. And he ended and, up with a cold in the after that. And I don't think so. Oh, there was that, another I, president who got a cold, yeah. and he actually died a few months later. Right, I think right, it was President Harrison. Right? Yes. <laughs> so, okay. But um, anyway, it was just quite a day for a nine-year-old to uh, see uh, President Kennedy and to attend the parade. And he and Jackie came down Pennsylvania Avenue in the open car. Her pillbox hat, which mm. became the fashion, my mother, you know, and all the women in the neighborhood started wearing Jackie Kennedy's That's style great clothes. History, yeah. So it's part of it. And and the vision that we've all seen of him speaking at that time, 
and you could see the condensation, you know, the the, the, the yes. clouds of mist coming from his uh, from from his breath as yes. he spoke. Um, and I think there was a bit of a breeze there as well. It yes. was you could see it was bitterly cold. Yes, the interest. The, the, I mean, the speech was extremely powerful. You were in the middle of the Cold War. Mm. Um, the U two had been shot down by the Russians. Mm. Eisenhower, Eisenhower's last days were tense. Kennedy would ultimately face Khrushchev, and it was a terrible meeting, and it led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. which I also w lived through as a student. Mm. Uh, we would huddle under glass under our desks waiting for a nuclear bomb to, uh, to go off mm. and everything. It's just part, you're closer to it. That, I guess that's, that's it. But yeah. Kennedy, in the inaugural address, if you read it, it's all about foreign policy. There's not a word of domestic policy in it. And so this is the post-Cold War, the post-war generation mm. coming into the middle class and building the country at that time. Yeah. And just to stay quickly, very briefly on this theme for a moment, because of where you were and that same time you were then a couple of years later at Martin Luther King's yes. I Have a Dream speech. Yes. Uh, the Lincoln monument. I didn't go. White kids, oh, white kids didn't go. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to use some language here. But uh, I, there were. I was in a summer camp. I may have misread that in. No, the book no. Somewhere. I was in summer yeah. camp in West Virginia, and uh, I heard the counselors talking. And they say the are coming mm. yes, for, the, for the march, that, yeah. and that obviously stayed with me. So we were told to stay home. We our parents did not let us out of the house. None of the kids were out of the house because black people were marching downtown in Washington and at the no, Lincoln okay. Memorial. But you still uh, uh, absorb saw the power of that rally. Yes, and just just astonishing. Um, and, and you also take us then in that introduction. And this is shifting now to 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 the subject of the book, Trump, yes. and and all of that. And I want to read uh, just so that listeners can have a, a sense of the, the the sort of drama. I think it's a really really great book you've written, and it really draws you in with the um, with that prologue. And in it, you uh, come to the sort of moment of Trump and. Uh, in 2016, and you say, I never understood, still don't, how the United States could go from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, how the country could unite and conquer the legacy of race and send the first black American into the White House with an overwhelming margin, and yet eight years later, elect a man who embodied the urge to divide America to its very core. Yes. Uh, it, uh, I still don't fully understand it. No, the, it only, the only consolation I take from it is on the on the raw popular vote, Hillary Clinton won the election by three million. Yeah. If the Electoral College, which was set up by the founding fathers to be a buffer between the will of the people and respon responsible government, um, didn't exist, she would have been elected and we wouldn't go have gone through this trauma. So, so it is an undemocratic institution and other institutions- The colleges, you mean? The yeah. electoral college yeah. and other institutions have now been called into question because they're undemocratic too. The Senate, in which every state has two votes, so Wyoming has the same amount of votes as California. Mm. And because of the rigging of the rules, it requires 60 votes, a supermajority to pass anything. And you have a Supreme Court, which as we speak is at the lowest ebb of um, popularity in, in, in its history. 30% of the people approve of the court. 70% don't. So the court makes decisions uh, on voting rights, on abortion rights, on gun control, none. And uh, mm. and people are rebelling. So there's so the question posed by the 2016 election is how do we make this democracy work mm. in the context of a man who's very dangerous to that democracy itself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just before that, and speaking of the Obama part of it, um, you obviously were, were overjoyed. You're aligned with the Probably. Democrats. You've worked for the Democrats. You've worked for Labor here. You know that's that's where you stand. Um, I wonder, did it vex you that in order for one 
for that breakthrough that you talk about there of, of sending a black man to the White House for the first time, that it came at the expense of the other breakthrough that was also needed that would have been remedied had Hillary won in 2016, had she won the college. It's still worth having Obama as president. <laughs> well, I wasn't really asking you that, but it is... It, it, you've worked for Australia's first female prime minister, so you're it was well worth aware having of, her too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of suffered this. I mean, it's sort, of, it's sort of the same fate. You have this breakthrough, and then a retrograde reaction to it. Which, yeah. and then you wonder, well, um, a was it worth it? B, what's the legacy, and where does it go? I think with the current government now. Um, it seems that the energy wars are over because there's a pretty big consensus that we really have to do something serious. And the thought of more uh, women taking power in the country is not scary to people anymore. So I, progress is being made. Progress is being made, and, and and you would have seen that because of the long life you've had and and the the, the country that you've seen that you grew up in and how how it's how it's moved to where it is now. But yes. it's also taken some backward steps, some dramatically backward steps it, it, yes. in, in, in recent times. But of course, also in your, when you were a young man, um, Watergate happened, you know, 10 years after after the inauguration, 11 years after that, Watergate happened. It, it, it was shocking. Yeah. Uh, and well, it's still the quintessential sort of political journalistic story, isn't it? It's certainly, it's, it's, a, it's a, a byword for, for political corruption and, 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 and conspiracy. It, it, was, it's, it was the uh, epical story of a different time in a different era mm. when things worked differently. Mm. It was a challenge to the Constitution itself. I mean, Nixon essentially was engaged in a conspiracy to um, corrupt uh, the Democratic nominee and win the election. He carried out several things to do that. And he was at the center of it, but the the so so Watergate was shocking. It was trauma. It was tense. It involved all three branches of government, but it led inevitably to a a conclusion, which is he's got to go. Yeah. And the difference between then and now is you have almost the same thing playing out: an attack on various constitutional powers, uh, an abuse of constitutional powers by the president. But the system does not deliver the same result. Mm. He not only survived the term. He's running again. Yeah, and uh, Nixon. Nixon famously said, "So he resigns. He tries to come back mm. uh, later, and it's just said to him, there's no way that you're coming back to anything.' Mm. So it's different. It, it's different, right? But what's interesting about it, uh, really fascinating about it, as I say, it's that kind of byword yeah. for for these sorts of things. I asked James Clapper this at the National Press Club." Um, a few years ago, I yep. mean, back during that time, back during Trump's first term, um, about uh, um, some hacking of Democratic National Committee emails that you may recall yes. that occurred, and and some other things that were going on. And I said, you know, I explained that we often say in journalism, you know, don't worry, it's not Watergate. I said, what would you say about this? And he said, well, it's worse than Watergate. This is worse. And he then went through a number of reasons why it yes. was. But- I, I always think it's really interesting to compare these two because Nixon was seen as, you know, corrupt, obviously, um, a, a venal, um, uh, driven by hate, as you point out in your book. Yes. Um, but at the same time, two critical differences distinguish them. And one is that in the end, the system works exactly. in ejecting uh, uh, Nixon. And the other is, and this is these things are related, is that there is no Fox News. There is no sort of intensely partisan media. We don't live at that stage in the internet age. 
So describe to me what how the media handled Watergate. The, the media at that time, first of all, all the institutions of government and the media worked, and that and that led to the result of Nixon being forced yeah. out of office. At that time, there were three television networks: ABC, CBS, NBC. They still exist. A public television network was coming into its own. There was the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine, Life, and Look. That was kind of it. And they didn't, and there was a whole lot of sort of regional, you yeah, know, regional other city papers, mastheads yeah. and stuff. But the point is they weren't all owned by one company. They no. didn't, you didn't tend to have cross-media ownership in the way that Australia pioneered and, disastrously. And, and they were respected so that when Walter Cronkite during the Vietnam War said, we are losing the Vietnam War, mm. that is when people understood the Vietnam War had to come to an end. Mm. And when the reporting on Watergate was so um, strong and insistent that wrongdoing was done, most Americans believe that wrongdoing was done yeah. and that there needed to be accountability. With Trump, again, impeached twice. I mean, first of all, mm. Nixon was not even impeached. Yeah. Clinton was the, was the second president impeached, Trump the third and fourth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when, when Trump was impeached, he, he mounts a defense and, it, and because of uh, the explosion of media sources and the people not being uh, – be, not beholden to, but dominated by a, a, a cadre of, of mainstream media. Mm. They, everyone can reach their own conclusions yeah. about what, and they're because yeah. uh, there were papers so, of record, and media tended to uh, towards factual reporting, right? Uh, and 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 the weight. Then, then of there these was opinion-driven yeah. news cover news coverage mm. in quotes, and uh, Trump exploited that uh, to the nth degree. Yeah, so just staying with Nixon, just for, for one more question. Yes. I mean, he can never leave us. I mean, no, yeah. no. But it, it's interesting because um, there was a good side to him as well as a bad side. I mean, there were a couple of key moments he, that, that he, he did well. For example, he established in, the Environmental Protection Agency. Well, yes, I was. Well, I wasn't even going to mention that. I mean, that wasn't in my mind, but it was, I was thinking that the 1960 election that he'd lost to JFK was. Incredibly close, wasn't there? There was an argument over how some votes had gone down in Chicago. That's right. He was un under pressure to um, push for an inquiry to you know to have legal processes that would have dragged out uh, the 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 election result. And in the end, Nixon himself uh, um, rejected that advice and said the country just it's just not in the country's interest. That's exactly right. And then so Trump in uh, twenty twenty decides to uh, contest the things that Nixon did not contest. Yeah. And he pushed it to the nth degree. And he didn't even have any evidence. I mean, and he didn't have any evidence. No. He lost 60 court cases. He lost three times at the Supreme Court, and he had terrible lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, because he had lickspittles, because he because the whole Trump administration was about sort of like cultish behavior, right? It, so you had these true believers. That's right. And just jumping ahead fanatics. in the narrative a little bit, that's a big lesson that he learned for the second term. Yeah. I'm not going to have anyone around me who's going to tell me about any guardrail that will keep me from yeah. achieving my objectives. Yeah. And I'm not going to hire someone who's going to say no to me. I'm only going to hire people who say yes to me. Yeah. And uh, that's what it's exactly what he's going to do. Yeah. And that's what Nixon didn't do uh, when when it came to Watergate. So he's already so he's already done that. He eventually is president. And then when uh, Watergate comes out, when that that investigation brings him down, he doesn't do what Trump. We've seen Trump do now, and which populists populist autocrats are now doing and doing effectively. He didn't mobilize a huge section of the electorate in the way that Trump did to turn this into so that every criticism that came toward him was was uh, was badged as a sort of that's a partisan right. attack from the left. And he didn't. Uh, bar his counsel, John Dean, from going to the Senate and uh, telling the Senate there's a cancer growing 
on the presidency, yeah. which blew it wide open. He didn't claim executive privilege over that. Nixon, yeah, he, so, uh, so the, the, just stay with that for a moment. He didn't. So he, so his aides his, could, his could lawyer, go before his lawyer, his the lawyer, White House yes, counsel, yes, the White goes House to counsel. the Senate, yeah, yeah. unprotected. Yeah, he can say whatever he wants. Yeah. Nixon lets him do it, and Nixon could, like Trump, would have uh, definitely claimed he, no executive way, privilege. Exactly, at that point. and no way that person would have appeared in a public yeah. hearing. Yeah, and of course, in the end, it ends with him resigning. Um, and Gerald Ford's first words are interesting, aren't they? You quote them in the book where you say, he says, my fellow Americans, this is an amazing thing when you think about it, a Republican steps up to yes. replace Nixon and his first words are, my fellow Americans, our long national, national nightmare, nightmare, is is nightmare is over. That's right. Our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Yes. And it, it was a, a healing moment for the country. It was what the country needed to he hear. But at the same time, it was the Republicans in the Senate who went to him and said, the House is going to impeach you and we, we are going to convict you. There's no Republican in the Senate, no uh, critical mass Republicans in the Senate who went to Trump and said, we're going yeah. to convict you. You've got to go. Yeah. And so that's a profound change in the political culture from what it was 50 years ago. Yes. All right, well, let's take a quick break then. We'll come back and I promise uh, the listener will talk more about Trump himself. Uh, I know everyone loves talking about Trump, so we'll, we'll, we'll get back to- They still love it. Nixon too. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> Lovable old tricky dick. Okay, back in a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Sausage. I'm talking with Bruce Wolpe, and uh, we're talking about his new book, Trump's Australia. Uh, it's a, an absolutely um, galloping read and a worrying read, a very, very important, timely book, uh, which I'd strongly recommend. So let's go now to to the, the prospect of a Trump second term, which is yes. essentially the you know the the, the the warning, the fear of kind of the, forms the spine of this book. The idea of a second term, I mean, some people may be tempted to think that, well, look, we survived, we being the civilised world or however you want to describe it, uh, Americans, but also the rest of the world, you know, kind of survived the Trump first term. We can do so again for the second term. But you're arguing in this book that this is going to be an order of magnitude different for a variety of reasons. Speak to that. It is. Um, Trump uh, has, it will come back in a second term if he makes it. I think his chances of getting the nomination are slightly over 50%. His chances of election are slightly under 50%. So he's fully contestable, fully competitive. That's that's 
brings it makes it dangerously palpable, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly. Over 50% for getting the GOP nomination. And, and do you put a lot of uh, – in your bookmaking about that, are you considering the impact of his current legal difficulties with these documents? Yes. I mean, what he's done – well, just briefly on that. He has a two-pronged argument, which is really powerful, and why he is able to defy gravity. Any other mm. politician would be brought to earth, and that mm. would be the end of it. Mm. Two things. Um, he uses the word weaponization, something very popular in Canberra in recent times. Yeah. And he says, uh, the attack on me is the weaponization by the deep state of the Justice Department. Mm. So a Democratic president has instructed his Democratic attorney general to uh, mandate his Democratic Justice Department to indict me and take me down and, and drive me off the ballot. It is the biggest case of political interference in the nation's history. Mm. And so people have bought the, the weaponization by the deep state. So that captures all the candidates because they say, yeah, that's right. We support you, Donald, because you're saying that. Mm. But he says something very different, uh, not very different, something that is exceptionally powerful with his base and you know why these voters are still on to him. He gave a couple speeches right after he was indicted, and I just want to read a couple words yeah, from what he do said. So, yeah. He said, in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the most potent formulations I can recall in modern political yeah. times. Although for a billionaire to be saying it about blue-collar workers, it's uh, a bit rich. They vote for him. <laughs> his, his biggest strength is non-college-educated white men. Yeah. He says, so they're coming after you. Either we have a deep state or we have a democracy. Either the, either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state. And then he says, this is the final battle. I mean, this is almost biblical. Yeah, it is. This yeah. is the final battle. Apocalyptic. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. And people go, they go nuts. Yeah. And if there was, I watched a um, focus group in Iowa, uh, Republicans saying, and so when they're asked, should he be indicted? They're repeating these words. Mm. They're saying, this, this is why he's being indicted. We're with Donald. Yeah. And you also make the point in the book that he's a strangely honest President, ruthlessly in a way. honest. Ruthless was the word. That's right. Ruthlessly honest, uh, president, in the sense that he said he, 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 there's no veneer, there's no subterfuge. He says he's going to do certain things, and then he goes on and That's does right. them, even though they're completely outrageous. Yeah. And so, if we think about what you just read out there, the attack on the deep state. The, he, this is part of the, what would be a, a far less naive second presidency. He came in as someone who'd never held elected office. He didn't, as you make the point a number of times in the book, he didn't even know what he was dealing with. He didn't understand the presidency. Exactly. He didn't understand politics. He didn't understand Congress. Uh, all he saw were people trying to frustrate him as he sort of blundered around with his sort of ego yes. trip. But this time... He understands a lot of those things, and he's going and, to be very And he knows how difficult. he's going to do it. So it's driven by two things. First, vengeance against all his enemies. And he wants to clean them out. Yeah. He has four major themes as president. He had them in the first term, and they're going to stay in the second, but he's going to know how to do it without any hesitation. He'll be ruthless about it. Uh, the first is America first, that he represents America first, and he wants whatever's good for the country, that's what he's for. Whatever's bad or takes away or diminishes the country, he's against. So it's always America so first. So this is protectionism and isolationism. Uh, those yeah. are the next two things. So oh, trade sorry, and trade wars. Yeah. Uh, 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 isolationism, withdrawing from uh, taking America, bringing American troops back, bringing America's influence back home. Not participating in international organizations. I think the United Nations and NATO are number one and number two of what he wants to take apart. Yeah. International agreements like the World Health Organization. Yeah. Uh, any, the Iran nuclear deal, of course, was dead. The, Par the, climate, the Paris Climate Agreement. So isolationism and then nativism, anti-immigration, build the wall, keep immigrants out. They're a threat to the country. So he will deploy all of his power 
in pursuit of those and will put in place people who are 100% with him. He's not going, General Mark Milley is not going to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Donald Trump. Uh, even Bill Barr, a, a rock solid Republican, mm. he, there will be, he will not be attorney general. It's going to be people who will do his bidding. Completely. Yeah, that's right. So he's, you know, you point out in the book the, the instability of the, the the Trump administration. A lot of his uh, cabinet ministers, senior staff, key position holders turning over quite regularly as he, oh. as he, as he, as they either resigned or he got rid of them. Yes. And and some of them he attacked. I mean, I just found this astonishing. <laughs> I don't know how many other people did, but from quite early on, he was publicly attacking some of his own people even before he removed them. Yes. Um. You know, pillaring their 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 competence and their 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 patriotism and and so forth. Um, it was it was a clown show. I, I, we haven't seen anything like this. Yeah. But that's what we can say about Trump and so many of his activity. He fired the Secretary of State by tweet. I mean, yeah. please. Yeah. While he was sick and he was in a men's room in Africa. Yeah. I mean, it was just awful. And it was presidency by Twitter to to some extent because this was this was the first time. If you think about, it, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, but um, you know, political messaging uh, uh, is 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 usually a very conscious and deliberate process, right? There are a number of internal filters before things are said, particularly anything that goes out as a written statement. Trump short-circuited all of that. Suddenly, we had the midnight mind That's right. of this of this vainglorious person That's just right. unfiltered as he, as he tweeted everything from abuse to Kavefi or whatever which, it was. Which happened to be um, early morning in Australia, so that <laughs> the way the news cycle works, yeah. we wake up at 6 and 7 a.m. in the morning to get the news, and it's U.S. news, and it was, well, what did he say last night, and yeah. what did he tweet last night? Yeah. And so the anxiety levels rise because he's pushing buttons on issues that are really important to Australians. Yeah. Immigration, yeah. Uh, racial issues, yeah. international issues. International. I mean, he would, he would, he would attack other world leaders or or, or sort of, uh, you know, That's right. say dismissive things about their, their competence. Which the Australian government, and at the time, you know, a conservative government here, uh, the coalition, um, did not have any interest in rubbishing uh, NATO or rubbishing uh, the leaders of other countries, the, the prime minister of Canada or the, or the president of Mexico. Mm. So, yeah, Australia was, you know, you, then you have to manage that. Yeah. But the next time it's going to go deeper. Yeah, that's right. So- what are the kinds of things, like looking at it from Australia's point of view, that we need to worry about here? Uh, for a start, I mean, obviously, there's a different color of gov- different flavor of government here, brand yes. of government here than was the case when Trump was there. Trump yes. got on well with Morrison in the end. Yes. Um, how uh, would he relate? Uh, uh, let's start with our neighborhood because that's mm. closest to us. And yeah. I think so the foreign policy and trade issues are really important. So what is Trump really going to do in the uh, Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific? And that so the, the heart of that, aside from uh, what to do with the alliance with Australia, is China. Uh, he obviously wants to uh, renew and uh, forge a uh, new working relationship with President Xi. So what happens in that? And what happens with all the collateral architecture around that, like AUKUS mm. and ASEAN and stuff like yeah. that? Um, I think Trump uh, and and there and the trade issues are involved. So I think Trump wants to have um, the best trade deal for the United States possible with China. And then the question is, at what expense is that transactional uh, uh, deliverable made? And that brings up Taiwan. And what is Taiwan part of the price of that trade deal? It also brings up AUKUS. I mean, if, if, if she says, 
you'll. I also want to do the best trade deal with you, but um, this AUKUS is a real annoyance to me. Mm, Can we mm. just play that down a little mm, bit? Mm. And Taiwan, uh, I want your understanding that uh, I want your assurance that there are no issues with us taking over Taiwan. And I think that's a deal that Trump could make. The point is not necessarily well, that Well, as I, a nationalist, he would he when we've seen this anyway, haven't yeah. we? The way he respects autocrats he and nationalists power. around the world. That's right. He sees the world like they see the world. That's right. Uh, even though he sits atop a, a, a notionally democratic country. And so when they say when when Xi Jinping says to him, Taiwan has always been part of Greater China, a lot of countries don't even recognize it. Very few countries recognize it as a separate country. We will reincorporate that territory. That's yeah. our plan. We've been very open about it. And yeah. Trump would think well, I'm not going to shed American blood and treasure for, for over that. I'd, I'll do this deal instead. Trump is absolutely against foreign engagement. I mean, he, yeah. the you know the end of the war in Afghanistan, as horrific as it was, he engineered the agreement that did that. Mm. And he uh, wants to, he was within uh, an hour minutes of signing a piece of paper on his desk to withdraw all troops from South Korea. So I think he wants to do that. I I think it was that, John Kelly, the chief of staff, who pulled that piece of paper away and it disappeared and he never signed it. I mean, that would have been a major moment. But those major moments like that are coming. I think he'll say to Japan, oh, you like all the American troops we have there? Well, you're not paying enough for it. Yeah. And he may say the same for Australia. So yeah. there, there's going to be a whole bunch of collateral stuff up. But the point of the book is, I, I don't know, and there are other more others more experts than me who can say, well, this is more likely. Fine. Let's start thinking about what we do under various scenarios. Because I, what I really hope is that 2024 is a year of being proactive instead of 2025 by Australia, mm. instead of 2025 being a, a year where Australia is reactive. Yeah. As in, has, hasn't really thought about hasn't this thought coming. About it. And, you were hit with things. Oh, surprise. Yeah. yeah. What do we do? Now, you know, the... The first crisis with Trump uh, in the in his term with, with Malcolm Turnbull was over an immigration deal. Mm. Well, it, it, and we and we we heard the we saw the we transcript. saw the re immigration rhetoric. Yeah, I and, guess. and the incredulity, the sort of naivety that he had about this, he just couldn't understand it. And eventually, he said those words to Malcolm Turnbull: "You're worse than we are." That's right. Said it with admiration. That's right. About but, our, but, um, and it shocked yeah. Australia, but no one had done thinking. Well, what if this guy is really serious about his rhetoric and he decides to cancel that agreement? What yeah. do we do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and and it's interesting that when we think about AUKUS, right? Because the framing of the sort of uh, friction about AUKUS in Australia mostly comes from the left. That's right. Um, but in fact, it may be that a right wing uh, sort of almost madman, if we can describe him as that, running America, just pulls AUKUS anyway. I mean, he's going to say, "Why would we be giving you our?" Uh, 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 yeah, you know, I think he'll Virginia look, class submarines. I, and, he's transactional. Yeah, uh, and I think he will look at AUKUS and say, "Where are those contracts going? Who's benefiting more? Where are yeah. the profits being made? Why can't we do it?" There, um, there's just a, a couple words on what um, I interviewed about two dozen former officials. I find them speaking more honestly than current serving officials. <laughs> yes, <laughs> about I found that too. Yeah. And their expertise is really great. So they said, you know, what What do you think about Trump as you go into this? They say he'll never change. He's erratic. He's unhinged. He has chaos. Mm. He's arrogant. He has no sense of history. He doesn't care about what happened yesterday. If he's doing it, it's happening for the first time. He's completely transactional. That's where AUKUS comes in. He's unpredictable. Suddenly we can be surprised with something that no one really mm. – and then he never apologizes. He never says he was wrong. He never recants. He never yeah. retreats. Yeah. And that, so that's the mindset coming on these foreign policy issues. Yeah. Now, let's talk about something I've written a little bit about and we've spoken before about um, – Trumpism as a as a as a sort of a political methodology as praxis almost uh, the way the way politicians particularly on the right outside of the US have adopted some of these same strategies I mean partly driven by facilitated by 
the digital age and so forth. Yes. But we've seen some of this in Australia as well, haven't we? Yes, uh, we in have. In a number of different ways, you know, yes. sort of the, 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 the sort of reflex to maximum division all the time. Don't there, ever reach agreement on anything. There's that, although that, that's inherent in the Westminster system where oppositions oppose completely and governments try to govern. But the divisiveness of pushing those buttons is there. And so with those 7 a.m. and 6 a.m. news bulletins, what we have here is an echo chamber mm. of what's coming across from, the, from Trump and the mm. United States. States. Mm. And so when you have um, Nazis marching in the streets of Charlottesville, Virginia, well, Nazis show up outside Parliament House in, in Victoria, in Melbourne, yeah. in Melbourne. And at the height of the pandemic, you have people on a, carrying a gallows on a cart through mm. the streets of Melbourne, and there's gallows on a cart outside the Capitol on January 6th to hang Mike Pence. Mm. So we have, so that's the echo chamber. And so it has its popular dimensions, but it, it has also its has its Puppet masters, or it's you know, it's um, oh it, people, it, people yes. who are who are, they who are capitalizing take advantage on of it. it. That's right. I mean, uh, think about the uh, the um, revelation that Morrison had uh, signed himself into all these ministries uh, secretly and breached the sort of very basis of Westminster accountability. Yes, that party has not apologized for that. They, they Morrison have, still sits in the parliament. I thought that was uh, really an important moment in the country, in this country's political culture, where you had such a violation of Westminster norms. Um, it was just finally disclosed after the fact. He was held accountable. He was censured by the parliament. I believe he was the first prime minister former or former prime minister to have been censured by parliament. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And he... Uh, and he was held accountable, but not held accountable by his party. No. And so you have in the Liberal Party, at least in this, on that instance, something very similar to what happened in the Republican Party, where the Republicans keep voting in the Congress. They didn't convict Trump of impeachment. But there is a difference. Some of the same people who are huddling behind tables when the, the Jan 6 riot occurred. Yes, but there is a difference. The extremism uh, of, uh, of Trumpism in America, so it goes to guns, it goes to abortion, mm. it goes to religious values and so mm. forth, they're not reflected here at transgender issues. So extremist liberal candidates in the last elections lost. And I thought I saw that as a very encouraging sign of uh, where this country is centered. And part of the reason why it's centered is because we have compulsory voting. And compulsory we have that preferential voting. voting yeah. and, it, and, and that means extremists don't win elections. You're going to land center left or center right all the time. Now, the centers will shift a little bit. Howard was very conservative prime minister, but it was within the bounds. So what you're saying the there community. is that the system requires you in a compulsory preferential system to build uh, build a constituency sort of across the center, as you it have were, to. at least reaching into mm -hmm. that center ground, you, you, whereas the American system where it's, there's, where it's, well, it's not direct, as you said before, but also it's not compulsory and it's about revving up your base. Exactly. And the, the Trump base is going to vote. Mm. Uh, so it does make a, a huge uh, difference in outcomes. And I think it's just um, uh, so important. Yes. Now, one of those uh, intelligence officers, former intelligence officers that you interviewed made the point that um, this is an ex-intelligence official, I think, who said it's not just Trump that uh, we need to worry about. It's the it's the GOP because they are, you know, they are the ones who are electing him, um, and that this is not well understood in Australia. That's right. And the way to get to stop Trumpism, political parties want to win. The way to Trump stop Trumpism is for them to lose successive elections, and mm. then those those um, ideological issues are washed out of the system. Yeah. And Trump's lost a few, but when, when he's not, not enough. 
No. I, I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, to, no. I mean, to say, no, to say, it's interesting. Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, yeah. his most potent competitor, says we have to get rid of our losing culture. Well, what's our losing culture? He lost the House of Representatives. He, he won the election, but he didn't get 50% of the exactly. vote. Exactly. So he didn't really he, win it. He uh, yeah. lost the House of Representatives in 2018. He lost the presidency in 2020. He lost the Senate in 2022. How many times are we going to keep doing this to ourselves? So uh, that, as you say, he loses elections that he's not in himself. That's right. Um, and he's had but, a record. But you of- have leaders in order to win elections. Well, uh, here, um, the liberal leader here lost the seat of Aston. Yeah. And it it dented his uh, standing. Yeah. So, yeah, it, ah. it is. it does ultimately flow to the top. Or in there, 2007, the liberal leader who was the prime minister lost his seat. Yes. Yeah. One other guardrail that's really important here. So we talked about compulsory voting, mm. but we have the Westminster system. Mm. We can't have a, a, a Trump uh, prime minister in, in that we can't have a, a blow-in cannot become prime minister like a blow-in like Trump can become yeah. president. Yeah. It has to be the leader you of the majority party the, yeah. and the reps. Yeah. And the cabinet comes from uh, from parliament too. Mm. So this means that the person to be – so Clive Palmer can never be prime minister. Mm. Pauline Hanson <laughs> – Even though he actually <laughs> even though he actually ran on some ludicrous claim with $100 million. With $100 million. Million dollars, so, yeah. <clears throat> he cannot be prime minister. Pauline Hanson cannot be prime minister. Tweaky Farris cannot be prime mm. minister. Mm. So the prime ministership is going to be held by someone who's imbued with the Westminster culture. Yeah. And that will put up – that is a guardrail on democracy here. Yeah. Now, just in the time we've got left, let's yeah. think about um, – a live situation that we have at the moment, we can, I guess, look at this from two dimensions. I'm talking about Ukraine. Yes. If Ukraine had happened uh, and Trump was still there, had he won the election that Biden won, yes. um, then Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine would have happened on Trump's watch. Yes. That's assuming it would have happened. Yes. He says it wouldn't have happened. I don't think it would have happened because, um, no, I think Ukraine would have no, Ukraine didn't have to happen because what Trump was going to do was destroy NATO. That was yeah. the issue, yeah. not the land of Ukraine. After NATO's destroyed, then Ukraine is another mm. issue. Mm. Putin wanted NATO destroyed. Mm. Trump wanted to destroy mm. NATO. Mm. So no, there would, been a, there would have been no invasion of Ukraine. Now that we have an invasion of Ukraine and the potential for, um, uh, for Trump to come back for a second term and presuming that it's not going to be resolved before then, he says he can resolve it in 24 hours, presumably just by complete capitulation. Uh, yes, I think that phone call, he says, I can solve it in 24 I think that phone call is very simple. Vladimir, yes. Uh, Ukraine is yours. Yes. <laughs> now, Why am I laughing? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, it, yes, it, I guess it's all you can do, really. But it's, uh, you know, it, that, that if we think about that, for example, that goes to the point you were making before about how Australia has to look at where it is positioned That's internationally right. because Australia has a very strong uh, principled position on Ukraine, as do most Western countries, um, and could have could, could find itself well, on, a, on, on, on an opposition uh, ticket to this, this the APEC power. This brings us to our Simon Crean moment in this discussion. Yes, it where does. It, it, because of uh, Simon's passing, which was so so sad. Yes. Um, he's his life is being recalled, and mm. the moment that everyone is folk, is looking back at is when he said he was against the Iraq War, and he mm. farewelled the troops and said, "You should not have to go. You should not be going, mm. but we support you, and yes. we want you to return safe." That was one hell of a moment. It was, and that took real courage. That took real courage. Yeah. So, if Trump does this stuff, this what we're talking about. Yes, a prime minister can stand up and say, we do not agree with the United States and we're not going to go down that road. And we are for NATO, we are for Ukraine, we're against Russia, and, and we want a world of stability, order, peace, and prosperity. And, and, but in 2003, 
uh, people, too many people were too afraid to say that. You, we can say that, this country can say that under Trump. Yes, absolutely. Um, Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure having you talking about this book, um, Trump's Australia. It's, uh, in a sense, worrying material, but like you say, we need to be, we need to be thinking to about this. About yes. uh, and we need to be thinking about it in terms of a Trump second term that would be significantly more dangerous and have greater implications for Australia than was the case the first time around. And if we thought that was... If we thought that was bad, it was bad, but it was also, um, you know, sort of it was falling over itself a lot of the time. It was sort of chaotic and Trump didn't know what he was doing. People are thinking about it. They come up to me and they say, it really could happen again, couldn't it? So it, the anxiety level here is rising and I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah. Well, look, just before we go, uh, it would be remiss of me not to raise this with you given your expertise in this area. Is it wise for the Democrats to be running an 81-year-old someone who would be 81 at the time of inauguration, should he win the next election, that being Joe Biden? There's uh, the answer that to that question. That to me. It is, it is, it, what's interesting is with both candidates, you have more than half the country saying they don't want either of them. Yeah. So normally you say, hey, yeah, I'm for, I'm for Obama, you know, yeah. I'm for Dick. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he, here, no. And the reason why Biden is unchallenged goes back to the 1980 presidential election, which was something that is now in the DNA of Democrats yet to be born, mm. which is, uh, who live now and are yet to be born, which is uh, Jimmy Carter presided over an economy of roaring inflation, high interest rates, and a foreign policy crisis in Iran, the hostages, and it was humiliating to the United States. Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, the last surviving brother, mm. decided to enter the race and run against him. And he got the emotions high and so forth. Carter held on. But the price of holding on was he lost in the general election to Ronald Reagan by a landslide, and Reagan served eight years. That's why Joe Biden is not being challenged. And so uh, Democrats are, have to live with that and have to figure out how to win with that. And you mentioned before about how the, the differences in our political system with our governments drawn from the legislature and the prime minister and so forth being, you know, having to have the numbers in, in the party that has the majority and so forth. The American system has like a vacuum in those regards, right? Completely. So so is there anyone other than Biden in your mind that, that like let's say let's let's assume for a moment yes. that one of the risks with Biden is just simply his age, right? And it that is. he suddenly is unable to go forward as the candidate. It, who mean, else would step up? It, well let's let's play out the scenario. If he um let's say he got, became unwell and could not finish the first term, mm -hmm. uh, he would I believe he would uh, step aside and I believe his family would understand that he needs to step aside. Yeah. Okay, so he steps aside. And that Kamala, would be Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris yeah. becomes president. She has the chance to appoint a vice president to be confirmed by the Senate uh, under the constitutional arrangements following Kennedy's assassination. Uh, so there could be a, a Kamala Harris vice president. But immediately that would open the field and you would have a norm. It would look like 2020 all over again with candidates running. Right. And I think the two strongest candidates are um, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, who, by the way, was victim of something, almost victim of something that was ended up in the Capitol insurrection. Do you remember men with long rifles going to the Capitol in Michigan and surrounding it and trying mm -hmm. to get into yes. the chamber? Yes. That was her. Right. And, and and so and anyway, I, th I think she's very impressive. And Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, right. any governor of California you got to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, so it would be an open primary and, and, and they would run against Kamala Harris. Um, and, and so that would be an open you know primary and you just see where it lands. Um, Kamala Harris does represent uh, the aspirations of black voters. And uh, that's why Biden, first of all, 
Biden has complete faith in her and confidence and wants her and so forth. But if if he was pressured to get rid of her, then that would be the black vote would disappear. It right. would be a real right. wound. It's going to be fascinating to watch this as it always it is. Will. The world's eyes on it. Uh, more important than ever. Perhaps. No shortage of material. No, that's right. Bruce Wolpe, thanks so much well, for coming to Democracy Sausage with at ANU. It's been a real pleasure to have this discussion. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for all your support for this book. Oh, it's a great pleasure. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.